We do so much good. We're providing mm. awesome housing for people who need it. And we're really stimulating the economy. We're taking either vacant land and turning it into new construction, new homes for people to live in, or we're taking dilapidated houses and turning them into some place that's really nice for people to live. Welcome to the Get Real Podcast. Your high octane boost of full on reality therapy for personal, business, and investing success with your host, Ron Phillips, because somebody's got to tell it like it is. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Get Real podcast. Ron Phillips and Heather Marchant here. Yeah, so we're going to continue. And as we have done, we've dispensed with nearly everything at the beginning of the show, except for telling you guys hello, (laughs) because we... (laughs) <laughs> I don't have time for that stuff. <laughs> we don't have any time for that nonsense right now because we're trying to get through a bunch of really important information. So let's get right back down to it. Today, Heather, we're going to talk about choosing markets, choosing properties, what to buy kind of stuff, which is, I mean, this stuff is really good, really important information. So I think everybody's read the articles from Forbes and you name it, CNBC, all of these financial online magazines, trusted sources really for financial information. Heather. Mm -hmm. Every year they come out with several different lists, all telling everybody the greatest markets for real estate investors. What's the part that they miss in every one of those lists, Heather? A lot of the lists are based of market growth and appreciation of rental property and not on cash flow. You know, and that makes sense because when people in the financial services industry talk about real estate, they talk about yield. It's the same language that they use for, you know, their investments. So they're trying to compare apples to apples. But as we talked about the fact that they're not really apples to apples. No. And we have our own lingo. And the reason we have our own lingo isn't so that we can set ourselves apart. It's because there's more and way better stuff over Mm -hmm. here than there is on the financial services industry's side, right? So the reason they talk about that while omitting some of the most important pieces is because that's what they're investing for. In the stock market, you're investing for yield, for growth, right? Mm -hmm. So you got to be careful who you listen to, the sources who understand real estate, yeah. you know, and there are a few out there, but and you got to be careful. And sometimes those lists talk about high cash flowing markets, and then they talk about the ones that we told you not to go into because they're really, really look good on paper, and then they will kill you in costs over time, yeah. which are the war zone kind of areas. Yeah. Look really, really good on paper. But- yeah, they'll have more vacancies. Your tenants typically will be more destructive. So you'll have also when you have the vacancies, you'll have huge tenant turn costs. I mean, it ruins your cash flow for the entire year about every year or two so if you're lucky unless it's like six months (laughs) yeah So real estate, since it's not a one trick pony, since it's more than just yield or appreciation, we have to look at several different factors when we're looking at these. So throw those lists away, or when you look at them, at least look at them through this prism. The first thing we're going to look for is the economics of the area. So right now, imagine we're looking at the entire United States, right? So we're going macro. And then on every one of these points, we can also, once we've gone kind of and chosen a market, we can also go micro inside of that market and do it again. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Heather, we're looking for economic factors. Really important. You can see the economic factors. You can feel the economic factors and you can also read about them. Interestingly enough, Google give you a whole bunch of information about areas. 
Yeah, it's super easy to target once you know what you're looking for. I mean, job growth and commercial development, people moving to the area rather than moving away, just, you know, the little basics. So yeah. So I mean, if you live on the coast or in really large cities right now, and people are migrating away, the appreciation rates can still be there, but the writing's on the wall, right? If companies are moving out and humans are moving out, eventually they're going to be less people to rent your properties and therefore rental rental decrease. Mm -hmm. Property value will likely decrease. You don't want that. You want economic drivers there. And so you also want states, governments, city governments who are trying to acquire companies and jobs rather than not care if they leave. Okay. Yeah. On this trip, we went through a town, Hot Springs, Arkansas, and it was a fascinating example of this. It had massive hotels and they were old. We're talking like early 1900s, maybe even 1800s, because it was first protected land for a national park in the early 1800s, in the, I think it was 1820s. So massive hotels, hundreds of units, and there were multiple of them. And the town was a ghost town. It was touristy a little bit. There were people walking around and stuff, but I mean, a dead zone. All of the single family homes were run down or boarded up. And I went, man, this town at one time must have been the place to be, right? So right, even right. if, you know, you have, there's still some desirability to be there, but over time, right? So watching for people leaving, I think is really helpful right now, especially. Yeah. Follow the jobs, right? So if there's job growth happening, commercial development, you can see the cranes, you can see commercial development happening. You know, that's all really, really important stuff. Next is affordability. So do you want to buy the most expensive property? Those typically aren't great rentals. They also lose value the fastest anytime there's a downturn and the most anytime there's a downturn. Yeah. Um, Are you buying a $300,000 single family home versus $120,000 single family home? So yeah. And of course, you don't want to be on the very affordable side of that because then you get into the problems that we were just talking about. Okay. But you know, is your annual cash flow, is it the same as one month of rent payment in San Francisco or New York city? Just take a look. It's kind of comical. And in most of those places, you don't cash flow anyway, you know, you get really high rents and you still don't cash flow. Location is really important as well. Some people would say this is the number one rule in real estate. I disagree with that. I think the number one rule in real estate is that you have to be cash flow positive after all expenses. And that is an unbreakable rule. It is the overarching rule, which is why we keep saying it over and over and over. We talk about cash flow a lot because if you have cash flow, you can weather almost any storm. If you don't have it, your investments will die yeah. eventually. I mean, even right? look at the economic factors right now. There are people who may lose their jobs and if they own a bunch of rental properties, and each one is cash flow negative 50 bucks, 100 bucks that decimates your economic portfolio in the sense that you're going to have to sell or something. And that's what happened to a lot of people in 2008. Not our clients, but other people. Yeah, they forced to sell during a time when the property value went down instead of continuing to have income come in during that time and not caring whether the property value went down, right? It's just a little tweak, right? That's why it's the overall arching rule. So location is really important. Like, you know, anybody who's renting property, when you go out to rent, a property. If you were going out to rent a property, look for one, you would look for something, you know, close to good schools and you'd want to be close to shopping and you'd want to be close to good healthcare. You wouldn't want crazy crime rates, you know, especially like violent crime rates, right? Close to like a major highway is helpful so that people can get to work faster. Yeah. yeah, Close to the jobs. That's usually why people are moving to the area is because of work. So you want to be close to where those jobs are, you know, and then you want to have something that's desirable for the tenant pool that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And you got 
to have somebody, some company who can properly manage it. And that's a really, really important thing, right? So if you're in a place where there aren't any competent property management companies, well, then you shouldn't buy there, you know, unless you're planning on managing it yourself, which I highly discourage oh, people to do. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> 12-step program <laughs> think, for that. Yeah, right. I think the uh, one thing to mention too here I've had a lot of questions about is when to deviate from your principles based on that local economy, right? So sometimes it's like in Fayetteville, North Carolina, we've sold more one bedroom apartments or condos or two bedroom that are outside of our normal three, two, because that economy has a demand for it. And so knowing your market and the property manager can be a great gauge for that as well, the desirability of those units. But the same thing goes for the 1% rule. I get that 1% rule question sometimes. The 1% means that your rent should be 1% of the purchase price or higher. And it's kind of funny because if your other expenses are higher, then the 1% rule really means nothing. <laughs> it's just kind of a gauge, right? It's so, a fast gauge that you can use. And then yep. you still have to look at the performance to make sure, yes. you know, because in Texas, for instance, the taxes are insane high, yeah. okay? And the 1% rule may look really, really good until you look at the taxes and it, it eats up your cash flow. So you may actually need to do better than that in certain areas, in certain marketplaces, depending on what the expenses are. Same thing yeah. with um, homeowners association. You know, your homeowners association can eat up a really solid chunk of a 1% rule pretty quickly. Yep, exactly. And then the next thing I think too is, you know, we've talked to several people recently, Heather, who have investment properties on the coasts and they've ridden this wave up. They've got tons of equity in these properties. And then I think it's important as we talk through these rules to also point out the differences, mm -hmm. you know, because I looked up a property, this particular property is in LA and I just tried to find one that was like a million bucks. You know, this is a starter home in LA. And in order to break even on this particular property, so, so the rent is $3,700 a month on a property like this, but your payment based on principal interest taxes and insurance, which does not include management fees. Like, yeah. Or yeah. Or anything else. Let's just say it doesn't even have an HOA, just, you, yeah. but you're going to have management fees, right? Your payment is $4,800 if you put 20% down on this property. So in order to break even, not to have any cash flow, but just to break even on the property, you'd have to put 45% down or like half a million dollars, or you'd have to buy the property for $825,000 in a market where they're bidding over asking, mm -hmm. which is going to be pretty hard to do, right? <laughs> so to put this in perspective, what we're saying is you can cash out of a property like that. You can move into areas where they do cash flow. You can buy multiple properties with your equity and you can have a substantial amount of income coming in instead of continuing to feed the beast, so to speak, right? I think it's just important to look at the difference between areas because if you live in a marketplace and that's what you know, then that's what you know. But mm -hmm. there's this whole big country out there right? And people, <laughs> people do live in other areas and there are jobs in other areas where you can, you, where you can have a better investment that provides, you know, more income for you and for your family. Anyway, Agreed. so what should we buy when we, when we finally kind of dial in on this area, Heather, what should we be looking for when we get yeah. there? 
I mean, once you're dialing it down to the property, you want to have it ready to rent. So Ron and I were just working on a multifamily new construction project that we're just got all the numbers on yesterday, which was super exciting. Oh my and gosh, crazy exciting. We, crazy we exciting. It was so much fun. Yeah, we were uh, texting so we've been working, yeah. <laughs> Some of these projects, guys, we work on these projects for months and sometimes for a, over a year to bring mm-hmm. them to fruition. So once they're actually, it's like our baby. Like once it's actually here, we're like, oh my gosh. This thing's so, so cute. cute. We're like, oh my gosh. And then of course the analogy goes right out the window because we're going to sell it. Of course. Yeah. So we're going to sell our baby. We're, we're going to share our baby with other people. It's adoption, I guess. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I did ask the seller though. I said, okay, this is new construction. So we need window coverings. We need a full appliance package and we need landscaping. Um, in this case, there was a two car garage on these units. And I said, we need the garage door opener. All those things that a tenant's going to want right? Because then the owner doesn't have to pay for them. So which, make sure they're ready for a tenant to move in. Which builders just don't naturally don't include. Yeah. You know, yeah. generally speaking, they don't put that stuff in too. When you're out there looking for property too, you have to take into consideration all of this stuff. Otherwise you have to put it in after the fact because your tenants are going to need it. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you're working yeah. with a builder, you need to make sure they're putting this stuff in like Heather was just saying. And I think there was a couple of those things we were talking to the builder and he's like, oh, oh well, you yeah. Know. <laughs> No, well, we but I mean, we notes. can, yeah. like we'll yeah. put those in yeah, <laughs> uh, where they wouldn't have been part of the contract if Heather hadn't said anything. Yeah. The one project we sold, I had to price all that stuff out because the builder wouldn't do it, but he'd give a credit for it. So we had to do it after closing and it was a pain in the butt. So getting it done before closing is way better. And then you can have it rented quicker. You're not having to wait on that stuff because people have pets and they're not going to want the pet outside in the mud, in a new construction house. So size also that you, I, I would say our rough gauge is about 1200 square feet per unit or not per unit, single family square footage. But again, that's just, that's a gauge, right? Once we get the numbers, we're like, all right, let's see what the desirability is. If it's smaller or if it's larger, you know, how much is it going to rent for? Is it worth paying a little more for a bigger home? If it's going, if the rent's going to be there. So every market has different characteristics. They may need more units of a smaller size. You know, that's where the property management company and some due diligence comes in because I don't know why you would want to buy a property. I mean, you're still going to pay like gazillions of dollars for it, but people actually will buy that. People will rent that. Where in some areas in the Midwest, they won't. It's too small Mm -hmm. and you don't get hardly any rent for it because nobody wants it. So you do have to understand your market. And that gauge can also say three bed, one bath or more with an attached garage. But that goes out the window in some markets too. Some markets build starter homes without garages. Mm-hmm. which is absolutely insane to me, but they do. And people want them. So you really need to understand the market that you're in and you need to understand what the dynamics of that market are. But in yeah. all cases, I think we can agree, Heather, if you're starting out, you should start with single family homes, town homes, or at least small multifamily, like duplex, triplex, fourplex kind of a thing. Yep, um, I agree. And we look for three bed, one bath minimum. Of course, we love three twos if we can find them. Attached garages like Ron mentioned. I mean, we have one market where it's totally, I drove the market. It was Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was totally eye-opening to me that there were almost no garages when I was driving around. So it was totally normal. Yeah, totally normal. 
I personally would never buy a house like that, but yeah. you have to understand the market. That's the same thing in Birmingham, like Birmingham, Alabama. When I drove through there, I was lord. They were actually building houses and they didn't have garage. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they had carports. And I'm thinking, man, carports went out in like the 70s. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what's going on in this market, but people were buying them and that's what they were used to down there. It doesn't, but you know, it doesn't snow. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, maybe they don't want them as much as at least on the starter homes. Let's talk about the different types of properties, right? Because you have A class, B class, C class, and then you've got the rest, which we're just going to classify as F because we don't want them. It's a failing grade. <laughs> we don't want those. The only ones we want are A through C. And they're very much like your grades, right? Yeah. A-class properties are going to be brand new construction or somewhere similar to that. And they're going to be in nice areas, all the new goodies. They're just nice. B, a little bit less nice, you know? Yeah, kind of your standard neighborhood. I mean, I live yeah. in a B-class neighborhood where I live. So I'm not in the nicest part of town, but I am in a safe neighborhood. And there's good people that make good incomes that live in B-class neighborhoods. Um, so nice and, properties in nice, safe neighborhood, you know? And just not best part of town. Like yeah, not and the then there's C and C can be, they can kind of be on the edge of F and you know, they can work their way all the way up to almost B class neighborhoods. They're just older property. And mm -hmm. so there's pockets of them that are better pockets of them that are worse. And as you go on that scale, Heather, you've got is kind of the risk reward ratio, right? If you want low risk and you want you know, not very many problems, well, you're going to get less of a return, but A class properties are probably going to be a better bet for you. You buy a brand new property, you're going to have less problems, less phone calls, less interactions with your management company, and consequently, you're going to have less return. C-class property is going to be the exact opposite of that. I would compare it. A lot of people get really confused by this. And I guess if you look at it like buying a new car versus a used car, right? Everybody knows if you buy a used car, it has a little bit of wear and tear on it, but it, you're going to get a better deal, right? So it's going to cash flow a little better <laughs> in the real estate world. But why would you buy a new car? Why do people go and buy a brand new car instead of buying a used car? So it's very similar as far as pricing, rate of return, desirability, maintenance, all those sorts of things. Exactly. So why did you go buy a brand new RV for your trip, Heather? Because you didn't want any problems and you knew there were going to be problems. You want to be able to take it in, drop it off and go, hey, there's a problem. Fix it. I'm out. Yes. Warranty. Right? Thank you. Same thing. Now, if you buy a used car, you can buy a used car warranty. Is it as easy to use and as user-friendly as the new car warranty where you can just drop it off at the dealership and say, I don't know what's wrong with this thing. Screwed up. Fix it. Not quite the same, right? <laughs> you can still get them, yeah. but it's not the same as having dealership warranty, which is not the same. So that's a really good analogy, Heather. And that's exactly how you should think of it because you can get a better deal on a used car. People do. Well, um, and if you didn't, no one would buy the used cars. Same with the homes. I had a client yep. really confused by this. Why is the rate of return better on this one? And I said, it's a used car, right? You have to have a higher rate of return or why would anybody buy it? Because they could buy a brand new house for the same rate of return, right? So there has to be that competitive. And we tell our sellers that if they come to us with a rehab property that has the same cash flow or cash on cash return as this brand new home, we'll tell them this will sit for a minute. Like yeah, this is not going to sell. <laughs> yeah. You need to compete with the other. I mean, otherwise think about the car dealerships, right? If all the cars were the exact same, well, then used car dealerships wouldn't be there. Right? Yeah. Well, let's talk about management because that's the key to making all of this cool stuff we just talked about actually work in the real world, right? Property management companies. So we've done a segment on this, like entirely on this, but let's just kind of reiterate, Heather, what management companies do and why we pay them gladly, happily, yes. we give them money. 
take my money. So they are going to screen the tenants. So that's super helpful. I know a little bit about how to screen a tenant and I'm sure there's some software out there where I could pull someone's credit and check their background to see if they have any history of like a criminal record or history of evictions or things like that. But the property manager does all of that for me and they are going to take all the calls when the tenants have problems and they're going to collect the rent. And Mm. if there's repairs, they're going to handle all of that, the phone calls Mm -hmm. and lining Mm -hmm. up contractors, right? They're going to do some inspections on the property. I usually ask my property managers to go on site at least annually, sometimes semi-annually, depending on the property, making sure there's no additional pets or there's no not an additional family living there, all of that stuff. This sounds really sexy. Why anyone would have a problem paying these folks. I know. Oh, and they're going to give me a statement and provide me tax documents, a 1099 at the end of the year. I just give it to my accountant. I don't have to run a report on all my rents and I'm so happy to pay them. In fact, when I have a great property manager, I'll send them a thank you gift and just tell them thanks for all you do to help me. I was sat and met with a property manager here. Well, not here. I'm in Texas now, but in Oklahoma a couple days ago. And I just said, thank you so much for taking such good care of our clients and you do such a good job. And, you know, I heard from her perspective, you know, how things are going and we're actually having a meeting next week to see how we can better set our clients up for success in the handoff to their property management company. She did say, she's like, man, when people are kind and treat us with respect and kindness rather than yelling at us, she's like, man, I just want to help them more and give them better service. You know, she kind of confirmed what we've talked about on this podcast before. They do a lot to make your real estate business successful. So yes. So once again, in case you missed it the first several times we've said it, be kind to your property management company. Understand that they have a very tough job. And whether you like to acknowledge it or not, it's very low margin business. Mm -hmm. So kindness goes a long way in that business, especially since they don't really get it from either side. Yeah. Hardly ever. So it's calling them up, thanking them for all. uh, Yeah. Right. Because I mean, if you listen to that whole litany of things that Heather just said, they literally do all the crap no one wants to do. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if you actually think in your brain of all the people who've told you to never be a landlord, what are all the things that they've, (laughs) all of the war stories that they've said, that's all the stuff that the management company does. Yeah, that's so true. It's all (laughs) the crap nobody wants to do. That's what they do. And so for their tiny little amount of money that they make, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, all of us should be thanking them pretty much all the time. A couple of things people may not know is that the property managers don't get paid if they don't have a good tenant in there because if they have a tenant not paying, they don't get paid either. So they want to place tenants that are going to be as little hassle as possible because then they're more profitable as a business. Another thing that people think that is a complete, we're going to have a little section on property management, so maybe I shouldn't steal all of our thunder, but people think they make money when the tenants move out. And that's not really a profit center for them. Property management companies want tenants to stay as long as possible and just collect money. They also want good tenants in there. They don't want to have to pay people to take care of all the problems. So the best thing for a property management company is to have a solid tenant in there paying on time every month for the duration of their lease and for them to renew for years. If all of their tenants did that, everyone would be more profitable, right? Mm -hmm. So it's in their best interest to have that happen as well. So don't get it screwed around in your brain that they want your tenant to move out so they can make more money. Most of the lease up fee goes to the leasing agents as a commission. It doesn't go to the company. So it doesn't do the company any good. 
to have that turnover. Yeah, I agree. I mean, part of our process in handling a transaction, we call it our escrow process, is that handoff to the property manager, making sure that, you know, everyone's in contact with each other. So there's several steps in our escrow process that I think are helpful to know as well. When you're purchasing a property, steps you don't want to avoid, obviously an inspection. (laughs) And if there's a tenant living there, you have to coordinate with the tenant's schedule and the property manager to make sure that someone can get into the property and take a look at it and then have the appraisal. If we can, we try to time them together to disturb the tenant less if there's a tenant already living there. But there's a lot of steps in the closing process, getting copies of the lease, um, getting that property management agreement and all of your due diligence done, of course. But we handhold our clients through that process because it's at an arm's length. They don't live by the property. They can't drive by and walk through it very easily. And so we oversee that escrow process as a team. You know, Heather just started spouting off different things that were happening. And I'm not sure if you guys caught this, but on any given transaction, there can be dozen different companies involved. Yeah. Now, just think through this for just a second, right? There's all of these people. And this is one of the things that our clients really like that we do is that we handle all of this and we have all of these team members in every one of our markets. And if you're going to go out there and do this on your own, think through what you just said. There's a buyer, there's a seller. Many times the seller is a company, right? There's a title company that's handling the transaction. There's a lender who's handling the transaction. There's an inspector. There's an appraiser. I mean, potentially there's repair people. There's a property management company that's going to be involved. I'm forgetting people. There's there's potentially a 1031 accommodators. There's potentially IRA companies that would be involved. Attorneys potentially that would be involved. I mean, and we're probably leaving some out because we're not going through the thing all in, in order. But I mean, all of that, inside of all of that is a process that has to be done in a given time period. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've got repair company also that's going to be involved. That may be the seller and probably a third the seller who's doing it. And there could be multiple of them. It could have been plumbing issues. There could be electrical issues. I mean, start involved in this process and how all of this comes together. It's a lot of folks to make one, what could be considered tiny transaction happen, right? If you're buying a hundred to $150,000 house, that's really in the world of real estate. That's a tiny transaction. And so there's just a lot that goes into making this thing work. And everybody wins that there's no one throughout the process that we're raking over the coals and having them lose revenue to handle the transaction, right? So their families, everybody is winning. It's cool. At one point, Heather, we went back and we actually asked our suppliers and all of our partner organizations that we work with, how many people are involved in making their businesses all run, right? Mm -hmm. So our company, IRA companies, 1031 accommodators and lenders, affiliates, warranty companies, insurance, oh, we've read insurance, insurance companies, appraisers, inspectors, property management companies, title companies, sellers. And then because of our core values, most of those people also, like we do, support charitable organizations. And so when you think about this as a drop, right, your one purchase gets dropped into this pool and it ripple effects. As we counted these up, it affects over 2000 people from all of these different entities. And that's the way the economy works, right? That's the way our system works. So you have one purchase. And when you pile a bunch of purchases up on top of that, and you take into account that we're doing this in multiple different marketplaces, and there are so many people that work for every one of these companies that's affected by what you guys do, what we all do collectively, right? It's a massive undertaking. 
And yeah. there's a lot of people's lives that are affected by it. And so I was just at a mastermind. I think I said last time we were recording, I was just at a mastermind. Actually, we recorded there. <laughs> and one of the guys got up to speak and he said, hey, when you talk about real estate investor, what do you think the rest of the world thinks when they hear real estate investor? Mm. And of course, we start saying douchebag and you know, <laughs> thief and you know all these horribly negative words, right? That's what everybody thinks. If you look at it, if you just flip the script a little bit, we do so much good. We're providing yeah. awesome housing for people who need it. And we're really stimulating the economy. We're taking either vacant land and turning it into new construction, new homes for people to live in, or we're taking dilapidated houses and turning them into some place that's really nice for people to live. And in the process, we're affecting all of these people's lives, including charitable organizations that continue to provide more and more and more in all of these different marketplaces. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And so as you're learning about this, really think through the impact of a transaction a little bit more than just the impact that it has on you. I agree. I mean, it's a creation of something from scratch, right? Taking something and making, sometimes it feels like it's a miracle <laughs> to make, yep. to move heaven and earth, to make something happen. But yes, providing housing for people, improving neighborhoods so that they're better for families, maybe even safer for families. I was in Birmingham and met with one of our suppliers and he had overhauled a fourplex on a row of four fourplexes. And he said, I hope I can get these other three buildings in here because I want to kick all the riffraff out. That's what he called it. And clean this up and make it better. He said, because this one fourplex looks amazing. But he said, these other three, I want to get my hands on those. So he's actively calling the owners to try to bring up the neighborhood, right? Which is and pretty- that is what real estate investors really do. Mm -hmm. Now, do we get great tax incentives to do that? Do we or do we make money doing it? You bet. Yep. You bet we do. And we deserve to. We probably should leave it there. Next episode of this series, we'll talk a little bit more about market. I know everybody wants to know about the market and they want to know about how can you profit and how does the market cycles affect every transaction that we do. So we'll talk a little bit about that and we'll do some stats and updates on you know where the market's at, what we're doing. And until then, you guys, we're dumping lots of information on you. So do something with the information that we're providing. So actively sit down, make a plan, take the things that we're saying. And if you're going to do it yourself, make a plan and get out there. We're giving you all the information you need to go do this if you want to do it yourself. And if you want to do this and you don't want to do it yourself, well, then we're here to help you. So you can reach out and Heather, they can reach us how? Invest at rpcinvest.com. And I would highly suggest you reach out to look at getting pre-approved for a loan because that you have to, it takes a minute and you have to get it done in order to put offers on property. Properties. So Plus if you don't pay cash, you know, yeah, true. We don't usually have many investors pay cash. So I forget that. But if you need a connection in order to do that, reach out. We're happy to help there too. So we have great lenders that we work with. Okay. And in addition to that, guys, if you have questions, same email, right? Hit us at invest at rpcinvest.com and we will answer your questions as we go through this, right? So please and we're trying to incorporate that into the here. So if we don't like call your question out, just know that we're trying to put the questions in here so that you guys, so that we're answering everything. And we mm -hmm. got several episodes left of this particular series before we go back to our normally scheduled programming. And so anyway, we will be back in a few days with another episode in the series. Until then, get out there and make something happen for you. Thanks. This has been the Get Real Podcast. To subscribe and for more information, including a list of all episodes, go to getrealestatesuccess.com.